Um, but I don't think I introduced myself. My name is Dan Song. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be together as we sing, as we pray, as we look into God's Word this morning. Uh, just to catch us up before I start reading this passage, if you recall, last week we've been in this book of Samuel, and David the king, his son Absalom, he tries to attempt this coup. He rebels against his own father and basically overtakes the kingdom. And David, the king, the rightful king, is exiled and he has to flee. And this is the second time this has happened in his life. But over, over chapters 16 and 17 and, and part of 18, what you see is they go to war. They go to battle. And Absalom actually dies. Absalom dies, and this means that David has won, and he gets to have the kingdom back rightfully. But as they go to war, this is what David tells his army twice. He says, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Obviously, that doesn't happen. David's right-hand man, his general, Joab, and we'll read about him here, he kills him. And rightfully so, because though he was David's son, he was also the enemy that had to be killed. And so David secures this great victory, but Absalom is dead, and David is awaiting this news of what has happened in this war. And that's where we're going to jump into here, starting in verse 19 of chapter 18. Read along with me. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we come before you, and we thank you for the word that you give to us that is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So, Lord, I pray that this morning, as we sit under your word, give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see so that we might be transformed and have the, the, the mercy and the grace to live in this broken and fallen world. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've gotten older into my 40s, one thing that I've recognized is that I live life in the tension of the joy and sorrow all too often. A famous poet, Khalil Gibran, he once wrote this. He said, then a woman said, speak to us of joy and sorrow. And he answered, your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And the, self and the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. How else can it be? It's a beautiful description of much of what we experience every single day or in different seasons of life when we experience the joy and sorrow and we hold those things in tension. You probably have those moments maybe rush or flood into your mind of those experiences, right? One of the first things I thought of as I thought about this was when our oldest son turned 10 years old. And so we decided to make a big day out of it and he wanted to go to Dave and Buster's. And so we're like, let's go, let's just splurge and let them spend all their money and then get scammed with those tickets to spend about $100 to buy a $1 toy that's gonna break, right? Let them have fun. And so we decided to go to Dave & Buster's, and on the road, as we were driving to Dave & Buster's, I got a call from my dad. And my dad uh, said, about an hour ago, your grandmother passed away. And that afternoon was such a hard mix of emotions for me, dealing with celebrating my son's birth, 
but also dealing with the heaviness of losing my grandmother on that same day. Life, death, sorrow, joy, we experience that tension every single day of our lives. That's why all too often, even for me, if I'm having a good day, I don't want to turn on the news or watch the news because it just it absolutely makes my day horrible. Thinking about all the brokenness and sin and fallenness that we experience and hear on the news. But here's the question. How do we live in that tension? As Gibran said in his poem, how else can it be? Well, here in this story, I think we have some answers. We have some answers to how we're supposed to deal with the joys and the sorrows in life. Here, the king of Israel, God's chosen, David, experiences that tension of sorrow and of joy. The celebration of victory of war mingled with the death of his son. And so what I want us to see this morning as we walk through this story in these three movements, the news, the news of the battle, then followed by the grief of David, concluding with the rebuke of Joab. What I want us to see here is that as followers of Jesus, life is full of sorrow and grief, regret and pain because of the effects of sin. Sin is broken, marred, it's polluted God's good world, but there is hope. There is hope of salvation that God gives to his people. And that's the hope of heaven for us who follow Jesus. So let me just begin here, starting in this first movement of the news of the battle. David is waiting. David is waiting, has no clue what has happened. As readers, we know what has happened. God has granted and delivered Israel this victory. But at the same time, it has cost David's son Absalom his life. And so as David waits, we read in verse 19 that there's this man, Ahimez, the son of Zadok, who is so eager to go and tell David this good news that God has delivered Israel from the hands of Absalom, right? This coup, this rebellion that he tried to throw has been thwarted. And Ahimez wants to go tell. It's like when I come home from work and my three children, for whatever reason, as, I, as soon as I open the door, all three of them are screaming in my face, wanting to tell me something that has happened. Usually bad, but sometimes good. But this is what him is doing to Job, or Joab. He wants to be the first to go tell David of this victory that God has given. But Joab is smart. Joab, this general, says, no way, you're not going. You're too close to the king. And by you telling him, you're going to have to tell of everything that has happened, including the death of his son. And so he chooses this Cushite, this foreigner, from northern Africa, who says he's well removed, he'll only tell basically just the headlines of what has happened, and he should go because he can bear, he can be the bringer of bad news. And so Joab chooses his Cushite to go, and the Cushite is sent. But here, him as it still wants, is so persistent, still wants to go. And, and Joab is telling him no. But him as is like, come what may, let me go, let me go, let me go, right? Like this little kid who's so excited to tell. And Joab's probably thinking, well, at this point, the Cushite is far off, far enough. He'll be the first to bring this news, good and bad. Fine, go. He just relents and says, fine, go and try to go catch up. And you could tell the news after this Cushite has already done so. But what we don't know is that Ahimez is not only persistent, 
he's also actually pretty smart. The Kushite takes the shortest route, but it's actually a lot of terrain that's difficult. Ahimez is smart and knows this area, so he takes the longer route, but it's just the plains. It's just flat. And so he takes the longer route and actually gets there first. And as he gets there first, he tells David this good, uh, the good news of the victory, right? He says in verse 28, all is well. In the Hebrew, do you know what it's translated as? It's just one word, shalom. He comes to David and says, shalom. And that's the perfect word. It means wholeness, peace. Everything is right the way it was meant to be, that this rebellion was thwarted, this coup was fought off, and that everything will be restored as it should be. But he wasn't ready for the next question that David asked. And what does he ask him? He asks him, is my son well? And what does Ahimez do? He's not ready. You could almost sense him squirm. And what does he say? He says, the rebellion is over. The danger is past. All those who have had their hand against the Lord the King have been delivered by my God. But then what does he say in verse 29? He lies and says, I saw, a gr- I saw a great commotion, but I don't know what it was. He knew what it was. Joab literally told him that Absalom died. But in that moment, he doesn't know what to do. And he just tells him the good news and lies about the bad. He dodges the question that David asks. And that's important for us to recognize here. We recognize how hard it is to live in this sinful, broken world. Even victory has sorrow and loss and pain. There is no such thing as unmixed blessing. And it's difficult for us to navigate as it was for him as. We struggle to be able to tell all of the news when it's good and bad. You ever seen that meme where it says, it's good, I'm good, everything's good, but in the background there's fires going on, or you see Michael Scott in the background. You've all seen it, right? By the laughter, some of you have seen it. We live our lives as if everything is good, and we're not willing to deal with the mess of the hard, broken realities of life. That's a humus. He cannot deal with the hard aspects of life, with the sorrow and pain and death. And all he can do is squirm and lie his way around this news. But when it comes to the good news, here it is. And we live all too often like that, don't we? The tension of the joy and sorrow, it's so easy to just focus on the victories. But what we really need to do is share and be open and vulnerable about the difficulty of life and the struggles that we experience. So Ahimez brings this news that's good, but he kind of lies about what's, what was hard. But this Cushite, right, he comes after Ahimez because he takes the harder route. And this is what he says as the king asks in verse 32. Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. 
This Cushai brings this hard, difficult news. Five times you see David as he grieves and laments. Five times he cries out and says, my son. Three times he calls out his name. But in the translation in our ESV, it says that he was deeply moved. The Hebrew translation for that is that he was trembling. He was maybe having a panic attack. He was hyperventilating. But he could not handle the physical reaction that he had, that he had to remove himself and be alone in his chamber. And here, if you only saw David's reaction and not the news, you would have thought that Israel had lost the war and Absalom's coup attempt was successful. For all of Israel, for all those that were looking into this, Absalom was actually the wicked, evil rebel who got what he deserved. But for David, this was his beloved son. One scholar said it this way, David was not thinking about the man who rode out to end his life. He was thinking about the boy who followed him around. He was thinking about the young man who got his first ride on a donkey. He saw the one whom he thought would succeed him someday on the throne. And he saw the sinner that he prayed would repent and embrace the Lord. All of that is gone now, never to be realized. And this is why David loses it. He has these heart-rendering words that cry out, Oh, my son, my son, Absalom. This deep, unrestrained, unguarded grief. Now think about it. He's, lo he's lost loved ones before. Saul, his best friend, Jonathan, his own child that he lost. And in those times, he penned these beautiful words. But here, when he comes to Absalom, he turns from an eloquent man and becomes a blubbering father. My son, my son, he cannot be comforted, and I cannot imagine the pain of losing a child because I've never lost that. I've walked with people through that. But all I can say is that we are called, all I can do is just say I'm sorry for those that have lost children. And to draw near to you and to pray that the Lord would comfort you. But here, he cannot be comforted. He is a blubbering mess. And this was all too much for David. And this is where I want us to see he is the opposite of Ahimez. Where all Ahimez could focus on was a victory. David could not see the victory that God had given him. He could not see that God had delivered his people. And all he could focus on was the loss and grief of his son, Absalom. Now, let me say one thing is that we don't have to pretend that everything is fine, right? Like Ahimez. In our Christian worldview, our God allows us to grieve and mourn. We have the space to cry out and acknowledge the brokenness of this world. But we're reminded that we can grieve with hope in the midst of pain and loss. Paul reminds us of that in 1 Thessalonians. We do not grieve as others who do not have hope, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And here, David, all he can do is wallow and be in this place where he is absolutely lost. He cannot see the victory. But this is where this last movement comes in, this rebuke of Joab. 
as Joab comes back from the war and comes to report and see the King David, he's informed of what? In verse 1 and 2, he's told that, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. That word victory that's used here, do you know what Hebrew word that was? It was salvation. Salvation. So the salvation that day was turned into mourning for all the people because of the weeping and mourning of the king. Think about that for a moment. The salvation that God granted and provided Israel has now become mourning, sadness, and loss. The salvation that God gave has turned into absolute defeat. It's as if David had forgotten the danger he faced. Even worse, he forgot that the God of heaven, Yahweh, had delivered him and kept his promise to him. The salvation that God granted was completely lost. So much so that what the writer says in verse 3 is that the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The victory that was theirs, they came in as if their tails were behind between their two legs and they were coming in from an absolute loss and devastation. These men and women had risked their lives, their homes. They lost their homes, their families. They fought with David. And here is David thankful at all? No, he's only concerned with his own grief. And that's why Joab comes and gives him this stark rebuke. Read here with me, starting in verse 5, what David or what Joab says. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. That's brutal. Those are tough words from a general to the king. But Joab is right. He speaks truth to the king because David was about to lose the war, not because of the battle, but because of his grief. David is in the midst of so much pain and grief that he is not able to be able to see the victory. But here through Joab's rebuke, David rises. He wipes his tears and takes his seat at the gate to conduct the business and the work of the king. I think why David is able to do that is because he's learned something about salvation. He's learned something about victory. Salvation does not come without cost. Salvation does not wipe away the past or the loss that we experience, but salvation does give him and us a future. David cannot 
cannot save Absalom. Absalom refused to repent and go to the Lord. But now David can live in light of God's salvation. And it's because of this salvation that David can get back on and deal with the tension of loss and grief, but also of victory and salvation. Because salvation is the Lord's. And that's a lesson for us here as well. Life is full of sorrow and loss, even for those who believe in Jesus. Maybe especially for those who believe in Jesus. Because we know, we know how wrong sin and misery and, and brokenness are. And we know the cost because of the Savior that paid the ultimate cost to make things right for us. This story, and actually the entire book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, shows us of this anointed King David, that he is truly a suffering king. David sheds tears for his own griefs and over his own guilt. But David's descendant, Jesus, the man of sorrows, he bears our griefs and he carries our sorrows. Jesus does not promise us this perfect life with no sorrow or sickness. He never said that, but he does promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. Even in the midst of the worst times, he is with us. In this dark and broken world, there is true salvation for those who have placed their faith in Jesus. And that's why I think when we think of this idea of salvation, that is ours. Past, present, future. The past salvation of what Jesus did for us. That he went to the cross and bore our sorrows. He carried our griefs and died. So that why in the present salvation, when we experience sorrow and grief, we might actually experience the comfort and the presence of our Savior. That is that present salvation we have. But we don't often think about the future salvation, right? The one that is to come. That Jesus will keep his promise that he will come again, and there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more grief. There will be no more conflict and war. We will experience no longer this tension of sorrow, grief, and victory. But victory will always be ours. We're about to sing together on Jordan's stormy banks. But in that chorus, we sing, and we will sing, I am bound for the promised land. No chilling winds nor poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. Why? Because of the future salvation that we have. That one day there will be no pain, no more grief. And until then, Jesus will be with us and comfort us and acknowledge the sorrow so that we will have his presence until the day he returns. That is what this table is for this morning, to be reminded of that. Through his past salvation that he offers us, we can in this present reality know that he is with us. And the hope is that one day we will be able to feast at the table with him. No more sin, no more brokenness, no more sorrow. That will be ours. But until then, until then, have courage, have hope. Be secure because of the loving Savior that he offers us his salvation for us. Let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for the salvation that is ours. That in the midst of the sorrow and the grief and the brokenness that we carry in our lives and in this world, Lord, we know that you offer us hope because of the victory and the deliverance that you have given to us. So, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of that by your spirit this morning. Even as we come to the table, may this bread and this cup be our strength and our hope and our grace this week. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.